Well, I'm uh, pleased, overjoyed even, to have with me uh, yet again for some uh, fantastic conversation, I have no doubt, uh, the, the one, the only, uh, Layman Pascal. Um, here's how I'll introduce you this time. Layman Pascal is host of the Integral Stage podcast, an author and editor for the recently released anthology, Metamodernity, Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds, a Toronto Renaissance man, and a metamodern shaman for our emerging planetary wisdom civilization. Say what you will, I think that's all solid truth. Um, I'll take it. And uh, today, I guess just to frame our conversation a little bit, um, uh, this topic came up a little bit uh, and we just kind of touched on it and, and then we, we both thought it would be fun to kind of return to it and go in more depth. Uh, and I would, the way I would frame it and I'll you know let you re reframe it as you will in, in, in a second. Um, but I would say the question is sort of, what do we do with traditional religious language and terms and ideas? Um, there seems to be some different views, uh, maybe even go so far as to say tensions um, in some of the conversations and, and contexts that I've been having and broaching the topic around. How much do we seek to reclaim and how much do we need to rename or reinvent, reimagine? Um, so, uh, one of the things that that we talked about um, maybe as an idea would be to go through some of this language, go through some of these terms and ideas and see if um, if we could find some some terminology, some some definitions, some articulations of these ideas that can kind of uh, reinfuse them with something with some something that's still uh, vital and real. Um, uh, and actually, so I found uh, a quote that I feel like will speak to this a little bit. It's from Martin Buber, and I'll just read this and then I'll, uh, you can take it away. Um, but he said, he writes this in the Eclipse of God. He says, talking about the word God, yes, it is the most heavy laden of all human words. None has become so soiled, so mutilated. For just this reason, I may not abandon it. Generations of men have laid the burden of their anxious lives upon this word and weighed it to the ground. It lies in the dust and bears their whole burden. The races of men with their religious factions have torn the word to pieces. They have killed for it and died for it, and it bears their finger marks and their blood. We must esteem those who interdict it because they rebel against the injustice and wrong that are so readily referred to God for authorization. But we cannot give it up. We cannot cleanse the word God and we cannot make it whole. But defiled and mutilated as it is, we can raise it from the ground and set it over an hour of great care. So with that, um, just to kind of frame this, uh, yeah, I would like to know um, how you might... Uh, reclaim the word God and many others. And I have a little list too, that we could kind of go through. So, um, okay. So take it away. Yeah. I, I would love to go through that list and deal with them each individually. And maybe we'll get to some reconsiderations of the role of myth in a metamodern sense as well. Uh, I think that, um, ultimately both options are on the table in a metamodern sense. We could think of there being like a right and a left, so to speak. Right. Do we when we see that there are limitations to these terms, do we invent new ones to do the work we want them to do? Or do we 
take that insight and try to build it back into the existing terms, which is a little bit more conservative. And arguably, I think in alignment with that Buber quote is a little more work and they, you know, has a little bit of nobility and gravitas to it because it's tough to do that. It's tough to unpack these terms. It's very easy to um, try to rebrand instead. And I think we need to, um, whichever way we go, I don't think we want to go in a way that is just an extension of modern skepticism and the rebranding urge. And even if we decide we don't need these terms, we need to figure out what things really exist that we might need terms for. And we don't want to surrender the terms out of weakness, right? Just out of the fact that it feels uncomfortable or the fact that it feels like a tangle. I don't want to personally, this is my ethic. I don't want to give up the battlefield before the battle. I don't want to fall into what I think of as the modern trap of saying, those people who I think are idiots have defined this word and I agree with their definition and therefore I'm not that thing they're talking about. I'm like, no, it's my job to define the word to my satisfaction as it was their job to define it to their satisfaction. That's the fight that I would prefer to have. And even if we choose to eventually change and abandon that old language, I don't want to do it because we weren't ready for that fight. So, I mean, we could just, you want to just jump right in and, and see uh, beyond kind of the, the theoretical framing of it, which I think is, is clear enough. I mean, I think then it really just gets down to the nitty gritty of like, how could we re-understand these words, um, use them? And, I, and then we can talk maybe a little bit more about how, if we were to use them in this way, how we could kind of overcome the challenges of those misconceptions and, and different usages. So, um, so yeah, I have, I have a little, a little, a little list here and I I'll throw them out. Uh, okay. and, um, I, I expect a lot of this will probably kind of hang together and maybe be kind of, you know, interreferential. Um, but so starting with some of the big ones, and I, this is really crucial actually because of, um, you know, the context that we're talking in, which is metamodern spirituality, how would you define spirituality? For me, spirituality is the um, set of practices and predispositions that enable individual human beings to integrate their subjective subsystems in a way that is adequate or harmonized well enough to produce an experiential numinous surplus coherence uh, toward which they can then have an active engaged relationship as something about themselves and their beingness that also exceeds what they currently are. There's a kind of overflow and reflex loop. And we can experience that and talk about it as first person, second person, third person. We've got a lot of lenses culturally and individually we can apply. But in my mind, that's the underlying process. It's the individual ability and the set of practices that afford that ability and then the consequences of this of uh, accessing i usually say producing but accessing is a little more general um numinous coherent excess okay great so then uh, that already raises some interesting questions but before i get to one of those so then what is the spirit in spirituality how would you define spirit yeah, spirit has a couple of different connotations. And so I try to weave all of them in a little bit. So first of all, this numinous excess coherence, that is the presence of a spirit. It, it is something that is um, more me than I am and transcends me. 
and that can be conceived as a self or conceived as another or conceived as an energy. Uh, but it uh, spiritualizes me. It fills me with a spirit, with an enthusiasm. Right? And then we could say, well, does it have any particular identity or characteristics other than my production of it? I would say yes, but those are um, very minimal. I think they're woven into the ontology, into the syntax of being. Uh, so that there's, I think, just the fact that I can take it as a self or an other uh, describes a kind of implicit architecture that's in there that you will often find there are recurring forms of this structure. Uh, but generally speaking, it's the, that is the spirit that you, it's, it's there if you can enact it. And if it, if it's not enacted, then it's really not there and you live a despirited life. So you use the word numinous. Uh, what is that in your mind? It is a um, largely benevolent and mysterious, all right? It has those qualities to it. I, I generally like it, and yet it could creep me out a little bit. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is because it exceeds the cognitive contents of my current map, right? It spills over my map. It's a feeling of coherence in excess of my current experiential knowledge of what things exist, including what I am. And so it's numinous in the sense that it's um, mysterious, excessively potent, and pregnant with possibilities. So by using the word benevolent, um, that in my mind evokes a sense of, um, well, intention, personality, something like that. Do you, would you, to what degree do you uh, attribute personality like qualities to that numinous i think they are at least um minimally inherent in the architecture that allows that to occur and i think there's a tendency there's two different ways to handle god in sort of an integral philosophy sense you could say hey the fullness slash emptiness the unconditional nature of all being perceived in the second person is god it's like it's the buddhist void but you're talking to it I don't really like that because that's it's too neutral for what God has meant in the history of uttering the word God, because that implies, like you say, that there's a telos, there's a directionality, there's an ethical urgency, something like that, right? So I think of this, um, this extra quality. It's benevolent in the sense that it organizes you and therefore makes you more functional and shows you something that is more of yourself than you already are so it's inherently what you want as a being to be more functionally organized and to enjoy the positive feeling qualities associated with enhanced self-organization and i think when we do that we are more we have more in common with other systems that have also done a lot more of that such as we see very richly in the biological systems of the ecosphere and I think it also reflects, like I was saying, an underlying uh, architectural component. I would probably say that um, the virtual apex condition by which reality in the present moment feeds back on itself in order to organize itself is replicates that same structure that allows us to do that same procedure. And I think both of those are anchored in like the computational architecture of reality. Sounds like there's a highly fractal uh, kind of component to this thinking. Is that a, a fair 
Absolutely. It's very, um, very holographic, very reiterative. I think you, you'd see the same pattern at all scales and in all dimensions, and that would justify it being God. God-like. Right, which is a great segue to the next word, which is God. How, how, how much of what you've been saying is synonymous with a term like God? How much of it, what is, what is the word like God do differently than what you've said? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I would tend, I'm a little bit reticent sometimes to apply the word God to any individual peak experience dynamic. Um, But I think it's pretty legitimate to use God in one sense as that underlying um, syntactical potential by which um, holographically distributed person-like and person-enhancing cultivations can occur. So that's the, the programming architecture that we draw upon in the moment of being ourselves and in the moment of becoming more ourselves that so there's god there's like the eternal god in that sense and then god as this a virtual apex and an orientation of the patterns of reality in their relationship to each other but i don't think all of that is sufficient to um to unpack and revalidate what people at different levels and in different contexts have meant by the word. And I think what they mean is a way in which individuals or groups of individuals take possession of those functions, right? So that when people say it, they mean to imply um, a, a potency, an overwhelming potency, which can orient us. And that's a, that describes a, yeah, usually social, social taking possession of those functions. I don't think, um, I don't think those functions can be excluded. I don't think it's can be thought of as like merely a social production, because there has to be something which allows that particular kind of production to occur. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think it, it really is God until it's uttered by people. Uh, which is uh, us establishing ourselves in a relation to those potentials and using them for something, using them for social organization, using them for motivation, using them to confirm our existence in some more or less partial manner. I don't know if this question makes sense, but is there a God without people? That's a really interesting question. And I'd have to say minimally, yes. Right. The, the, the bit of the world that allows people to bring forth deity like intensities that predates us. Uh, but it's not fulfilled unless we do it. And I think this is one of the reasons that all of the great theological maps end up with some kind of dynamic Trinitarian architecture. Right. There's there's a source point. And then there's some kind of energetic dynamic. And then there's the human embodiment part that sort of instantiates or calls it forth. You need this uh, interactive dynamic in order to get the thing that we normally call God. So our ancestors were not dummies to say, you probably need three terms to describe what you mean if you're talking God. So then that would be, it almost sounds like you've preempted how might we understand an idea like the Trinity in these terms. And it sounds like you know, the father would be equated to this source point, the Holy Spirit, that that energy and and the son is that human component that sort of, I don't know, is the element that uh, 
Well, is what? I mean, I, I, say a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a, there's a little bit of a distinction to be made there, I think, which is you've got the source point, you've got the numinous uh, that's enacted, and then you have the instantiated being, which on this planet, as far as we know, are the humans, but could easily be something else on some other world, right? So all of that has to call forth to evoke what God means. However, the instantiated character has a secondary significance, right? Like in Christianity, and as well as all the other traditions, which have variations on the divine human, the divine human is not merely some person who calls forth the divine. It also represents this intrinsic paradox quality, right? In, this, in the way that Kierkegaard can say, you know, I can, I can have the most faith in Christianity because it's completely absurd, and it's completely absurd because one historical entity is the ahistorical force. That, that's the most preposterous thing I ever heard, and therefore the thing of which I could have the most potential faith. Right? So there's something about the koan-like paradox of the divine human that I don't think is captured in that simple Trinitarian model. It may have a secondary function, but I don't think, I don't think you can do without all of those components. One of the ways I think about some of these issues, when I think about trying to do definitional work, and just as an aside, it was interesting when I, so I did, I uh, studied religion, religious studies in my, in my undergrad, and I was shocked to see how much of the time was spent defining the very term and defining the very uh, field of study. Um, and uh, it's interesting to me how, how much kind of ink can be spilt and time spent kind of circumambulating around something that we can all kind of say, yes, this is religion. But then when you try to pin it down, um, you know, that cr can create very uh, different uh, answers to even what is religion. But um, when I've, when I've thought a lot about how, what, what is, what are sort of the necessary characteristics of a word like God? What does a word like God have to do? I, I contrast it with what I think about uh, in terms of what science as a field has sort of offered us that is often uh, set in juxtaposition to what religion does. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of people, when they encounter the scientific materialistic framework uh, that predominates in, in our kind of modern world, there's a reason why I think it can often be experienced as cold, inhuman, et cetera, because it is inhuman. It's, it's, a, it's articulated as something that is without regard to human life. It is not... Um, it has no um, preferences, intent, it's unguided, it's, it's chance, et cetera. And the contrast with that, I think in a religious context with the idea of God is that it's person-like. And you mm -hmm. can even extend that idea into other religions. Obviously, I mean, God and gods have been anthropomorphized, but even in Buddhism, a notion like karma, uh, where human action and its ethical implications are of some kind of cosmological or metaphysical importance, that somehow there's a mapping onto the world or the universe or the cosmos, this human-like thing. So I would just put that out there and get, I want to get your thoughts on that. Is there some, because I guess I would say that um, if, if uh, the universe and God could be explained as just something like it's fundamentally mysterious. It's bigger than the self. It, it's, it's the sum total of everything, et cetera, et cetera. 
on first glance, that sounds kind of cosmic and, and, and mystical, but I think science offers us a sort of vision like that. It's just sort of, I would argue, um, at least in its current framing, is often pretty psychologically unfulfilling because of all the reasons I've just said. So in terms of talking about the idea of God, you use the word benevolent, but is there something, um, is there some component to the way that you think about it that has a kind of, again, uh, like intent, will, um, telos, intention, um, personality, that sort of component um, that makes it different than just a scientific materialistic explanation of the universe? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I would, I would say the way I think about it is there's definitely um, an orienting quality, right? Whether we think of the end of that orienting quality as a telos or whether we think of it as a force from behind, but I think there is a directionality implied. And it's the directionality that we see when we observe these holographically distributed capacities for increased coherence and self-organization, the, the emergence potential, like Wilbur's holons, right? They, if you start stacking holons, you start seeing them going in a particular direction. And the telos and the will is to go further in that direction, to spread those outcomes, as opposed to what we might call regressive outcomes. So it has, it has a preference. Now, I think we are quite at liberty to apply different um, grammatical lenses here, right? So I can say it has a preference. <laughs> I could also talk to it, like, right, or think of it as a person-like phenomenon, or I could think of it in a mystical sense as being just me writ large over all the possible perceptual and cognitive maps that could exist. So I think the, um, the personal component is one of our options, but it is a solid option. It's not dumb compared to a third person reading. The, the relational component whereby God is um, the superlatively magnified other, right? I think that is one of the completely legitimate ways to read that overall uh, effect of emergence through intensified coherence. Um, and I think, I, I think it's an important way as well. I think you lose something in a culture where you don't have practice accessing that peace. And one of the things you lose is the sense that your spiritual development is toward the hyperpersonal rather than the impersonal, right? And I, there are lots of ways in which people have spoken about spirit impersonally that have been very useful in a heuristic sense, but it also shades into a nihilistic version of reality where you undermine the value of the emerging world by positing that your next step is to be less you and less real and less alive and, and you know in every sense so i think we want to um i would think going forward we want to favor interpretations and languaging that is um very embracing of the imminent very embracing of embodiment very embracing of ecology and avoiding the trap of discussing God in a way that is not existentially present in our reality map. I think that's dangerous. I think that's what Nietzsche was kind of warning about, but I don't think we have to reduce that to a human notion of personhood because the human qualities of personhood are based in something else, right? I would sometimes use the word croapomorphism. Yeah. Well, like here's, 
Well, if we're imagining God as somebody who like stands on two legs and walks around and is inventive and intelligent, you know, has complex intelligence, you know, just like a crow does. And so we're, maybe we imagine ourselves in the form of a crow. So what I mean to say is that the cluster of qualities we associate with personhood are not necessarily anchored in human self-satisfaction and human self-referencing. They're built into the architecture of the world and are drawn down into a vast multiplicity of forms other than ourselves. And therefore, that partly justifies thinking of them as a basic option for encountering this numinous quality which does have a teleology. <laughs> All right. Wow. There's so much there. So just to, to develop that a little bit more, um, the way that you're talking about, uh, oh, let's see. So when I, when I use the word personhood or whatnot, I will, I'll be referring to it in that broader sense that you're talking about, right? That in, whatever the personhood thing is, it includes both humans and crows, let's say. Um, there's, I think, a way in which that, is often spoken of in scientific circles as sort of being, this is just a chance development that happened on earth given certain conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And it's sort of like, um, it's not given any kind of uh, particular prominence of importance or, or, or it, it's, it's sort of just, well, you know, that's one of the things that can happen in the universe. But the way you're talking about it is is much more like it's almost kind of constitutive in, in some profound metaphysical way about the universe. Um, am I am I is that an accurate or an inaccurate way of? It's uh, I guess the way I feel is somewhere in between those, or or in a way where each each of them could actually validate each other if it was unpacked properly. Um, because I think yeah, it is one of the options right there are it's something that comes out of the syntax that's a necessary presumption for there to be a world right and it's something that affords the capacity of person-like instantiations to crop up in evolution but we're not the only kinds of things that crop up in evolution there are other options right so it is perfectly valid to use the it lens and ignore the the, the I thou lens lens, but it's also perfectly valid to use the I thou lens, right? It's one of the options that are available to us in order to interface with this. Some people might be more comfortable with one than the other, but I think in terms of overall cultural health, we need to encourage people's practical ability to access all of them so that everything's on the table and they can potentially cross pollinate each other in a rich way. Um. So you mentioned telos. Uh, what speak about telos? Because that's another great thing that um, in in sort of the scientific materialistic uh, context has it's sort of been denigrated as sort of like the logical consequence of Darwin is to say there is no telos. Um, and I assume people who are listening might might know what telos is, but maybe just define it real quick and then and then speak to you know, how you would maybe redefine it. Uh, telos is, um, uh, it's causality interpreted as if it were gravitation, as if it were something pulling you toward itself, right? And it got, I think, a legitimately bad reputation in dogmatic traditionalist countries where scientists, rational thinkers and philosophers were coming up and they were pressing against the idea that the telos is whatever happens to have been written down in the magic book, 
right? And so the magic book is a poetic instantiation of our recognition instinctively that telos is an option. But the idea that that's a, a prepositional statement about the inevitable destiny of the world, exactly as it happens to be written in this language in this book, is very foolish and so very limited, right? And, and awakening rational international thinkers should definitely have challenged that and pushed back against it. But it doesn't mean there's no attractive causality, right? We see gravity pull things. We see the recurrent Mandelbrot set emerging out of a seemingly infinite number of random moves, right? We see that there are these patterns toward which we're pulled and Teilhard de Chardin is probably, you know, the most iconic figure of starting to say that, no, God is, God is not the magic creator. <laughs> God is what's coming into being through our religious activity. It's the destiny and I think we can say that the uh, qualities that are building up from one layer of whole on to another, right, and one layer of uh, organized emergence to another, that those are uh, approaches to the telos. So what the telos is, is the uh, hypothetical extension of the, of the trend lines that are emerging as new layers uh, develop in the universe. So we can say there's more coherence there's more uh capacity there's more novelty there's more pleasure because coherence and capacity uh, make you feel empowered there's more of an empowerment feeling there's more of a interfunctionality that we see in, in complex systems right so these sort of things that are uh, emerging where they can over the history of the universe show us a trend line that we can call the will of god or the telos and yes, you can track it from behind, but you can also track it from the front. There are two perfectly valid epistemologies for describing those trajectories. Um, I was just picking up uh, Whitehead's process in reality and his concluding chapter talks about the, the consequent God uh, in, instead of there's sort of the primordial God and the consequent God. And I thought those were very helpful terms to kind of think about this um, in terms of, uh, and I, I'll just throw this out there, but I'll have to get deeper into this before I could, you know, stand behind this. But it almost seems like the consequent God is that kind of originating point that you're talking about that sort of has in it that the, the kind of DNA-like seed that is creating the pattern. But then there's the consequent where it's all leading to. Um, and, and that the notion that without you know the human beings are participatory or can be in in the unfolding of that in the in, in the instantiating of what that is um and i think it's interesting to 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 view telos in that regards uh in that regard but that's my own uh little pet project at the moment um all right so one thought that comes to mind for instance is like there one of the uh, laws of nature as we can see it is also the law of entropy um, and things also seem to be leading in other in instances to dissolution and uh, and so how, how does that fit into a, a framework in which you see uh, greater complexification greater greater coherence yeah I think we I mean you might be able to make an argument you might be able to be Stephen Wolfram looking at over a, a huge survey of uh, computational nonlinearities and say, look, 
there's an inevitable trend line if you run programs of this kind, right? That might be one way to go at this, but I think implicit in religious and spiritual life, this notion of, a, of an obligation, of a law, uh, implies that there's an effort to be made. It's an active process, right? It's not a given that things are going to work out in your personal life, in, in one moment of consciousness, or for the species or for the universe, right? That's why it's a law. It doesn't you, you can break a law, right? We think of this as the law of God. You can be in deviation, right? You can be in sin. And then you would have to come back and, and realign somehow in order to get back on that track. But the fact that most possibilities lead to entropic outcomes means it's uh, an obligation to be careful and to undertake the effort and to undertake the discrimination that leads to the um, set of outcomes in your given context where anti-entropic realities can be instantiated. That's the will of God relative to your circumstance. And that it requires vigilance, it requires effort. It's not something you can go, well, God's got this and the world's just going to magically turn into something with more consciousness and complexity. That can fail at any moment, just like your relationships can fail at any moment or your heart can fail. You've got to stay on the narrow path to enter the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. So is, um, is greater complexity a path of the that the divine is taking and greater entropy is 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 somehow kind of against that path is it is it silly to to speak in, in it i think that's that a way? good i mean that's a good approximation there is something there's a bit of a caricature involved in that for sure and i would rather say simplexity than complexity because it's not it's not really the next thing until it's it's reorganized into a new simplicity but I think there's a progressive and a regressive element to things, right? That if we allow, when entropy undoes a system that we find is a very valuable system and affords us the potential of even more valuable systems, that's an unpleasant thing, right? I always make this joke about there's nothing wrong with minerals, but if you try to turn me into minerals, that's murder, right? It's, it's an evil act to uh, cause regression to occur unnaturally. And it's a graceful act to allow progress to happen beyond the progress you thought that was possible. So I think there are there is a, a demonic and a and a heavenly uh, way of describing a polarization of this same emergence trend. I'm really interested in how sometimes certain uh, terms and phrases and frameworks can can come into my ken that are very helpful that seem to get it some spiritual ideas, but use a different framework. So one example, all right, so we've complexity and also the idea of something being salutary or health healthy. These are both things that, um, and I guess the reason why I'd frame it this way is because one of the issues that I think religious frameworks have, have, have been challenged by with the dawn of modernity and the development of, of the sciences is sort of, there are all these sort of presumptive notions of value. This is good. This is bad. And then, um, and then kind of a scientific inquiry will take a look and it, it will say, well, we don't, there's no basis here for us to assert these things. Um, and yet when you're talking about say health, um, that becomes very difficult. You know, no one, no one can say, like in, in the valueless world of, of material, no one's going to say, yeah, it's healthy to jump off a cliff. 
um, there are actual empirical things that lead to greater health. Similarly, complexity is a mathematical and a conceptual idea um, that seems to be able to do a lot of similar work. And there seems to be a notion of it's not quite value bound up in these things, but it's very akin to value. Um, most people, if you say, you know, would you, which is better, health or, you know, sickness or, you know, yeah, would you write uh, uh, simplicity or complexity? And that one's a little bit maybe more vague, but there seems to be something like there of, of value there. And yet it's framed in these ways. So then to tie this into this terminological conversation, might it be just better to use these terms or, or do we, what do we gain by expressing something like, you know, the path towards greater complexification as the will of God, what's gained by doing that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And um, I think the the best thing is the interweaving and uh, challenge that they pose to each other, because we can't ever really know in advance what the best set of symbols is, because the symbols we have, how well do they describe the underlying reality that they purport to represent? Right. It's it's not really clear. I think uh, I, I mean, I've, I've joked a little bit with some priests that I know about. Uh, the fact that no God is one of the names of God, right? You say, well, no God created the world and no God controls our destiny. And I don't, and there's no God that I pray to. And you're like, oh, you're describing God then that you're just calling it no God. That's the same structure. It's the word behind the word. So to what degree do the words we have actually map the real reference that we're trying to uh, communicate? It's very uncertain. A word like God, you can talk to one person and they mean something almost 100% the opposite of what you assume that word means. So we do have to constantly renegotiate the relationship between our terminology and the reality it might represent. And I don't think we can do that unless we can allow a lot of challenge between terminological contexts. So just the fact that you can say, oh, maybe I'm saying the same thing as this, but in this context that's the revelatory moment. That's when you become clear that something exists in these two contexts. And I think that's more important than choosing either context, because if you're allowed to just settle in your dogmatic inherited terminology, or if you're allowed to just settle in your new neo-scientific terminology, there's something you're going to be lacking both in your understanding of the ontology of the world and in your ability to empathize with the profundities that other human beings are seeing with their other terminologies. When you were talking about these patterns and the and the teleological unfolding of things, whether it's the Mendelbrot set and 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 whatnot, and how these things um, reflect some deeper logos, really. Um, it made me think of sacred geometry, which is another, I think, phrase, maybe not a term, but that that uh, that has a long history. But I I think you could also then think of it along the lines that you're speaking of. And um, I've 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 been intrigued to, I mean, there are, there are various kinds. I'm, are you, I mean, do you have any interest in, in sacred geometry and do you find that speaking about these things using that language is helpful at all? I, I know that a lot of people are really energized by it. I am cautiously interested because I think uh, on the one hand, it is part of the ancient um, meta theory tendency of the species that the great philosopher saints of the past 
used um, numerical architectures and geometric architectures to help make patterns that transcended contexts. You know, there's lots of situations where three is important. There's lots of situations where one is important. This is really good. Uh, and it's one of the ways I want to honor all of our ancestors who did it that way. And it's also very viscerally uh, engaging for human beings. However, I also want to contextualize that with rhizomatic, nonlinear complexity realities in which one thing and two things is, a, is an, almost an egregious human simplification of how the world is organized, right? So as, I think as long as those two are in play with each other, then we can say, where is it that sacred geometry and sacred numerology really apply well? Where, where are shapes that we can recognize very useful in eliciting deeper insight and profound experience? And where, where are things that we recognize as orderly not quite adequate to describe how the universe works? I think this, that's a great, almost maybe slightly more neutral way, uh, area where we could talk about this issue of what do we do with the tradition and to what degree do we use it? To what degree do we you know, reshape it or throw it out entirely? Um, because... For example, whether it's the the you know the map of the this the Sephir the Sephirot in the Kabbalah or the you know the Empyrean and the and the celestial orders of angels from you know pseudo Dionysius or whatnot, um, they're sort of guides of for meditation and things that people took very seriously for mystical contemplation, um, and yet they're also if I can go so far as to say flawed in the, in the ways that I think that you're talking about. So what if we say um, took as the next instantiation of that human impulse, uh, a sacred geometry based in fractals in chaos uh, uh, theory and mathematics and complex systems and used that for a basis of, of contemplation and meditation Um in the process, I feel like we would both simultaneously be throwing out older traditions that that sort of literally drew the the cosmos differently, but at the same time, I think we'd be staying true to a, a, the impulse of looking for pattern design um, and and using that as a as a meaningful meditative tool. Um, what do you think of that? Um, you asked me about spirituality earlier, and I, I want to mention that what I mean by religion is the social analog of that same process. And I think one of the things religion has to do in order to function as religion, rather than just to be remembered as a time when someone else was doing religion, is that it has to enfold and integrate basically all the genres that are present in the current cultural ethos, right? So that there's moments where Aristotle was really brought together with Christianity. Great. So they had science, right? They were integrating science. We look back down, we think they were foolishly unscientific, but they were integrating the best science of their day. So to do a similar thing today, we have to integrate the best science of our day. And the best science of our day is empowered by computational and lensing tools and mathematical tools to see into areas that are organized, but make no visceral sense to human beings, right? And that used to be just blanketly covered by mysterious forces. Right? God moves in mysterious ways. True. And we can map some of those mysterious ways with the help of our tools now. Uh, 
And we should be doing that. We should be thinking that the religious organization of reality uh, is something that captures a form of order that exceeds individual human comprehension, which I think probably any of our great theological ancestors would agree with, right? If you look at the um, the suggestions that are intimated by the layout of the tiling in a great mosque, you, you're all you're starting to see them pass into nonlinear computations. So we can make that a little bit more front and center and say, hey, this is what trees have in common with us, have in common with architecture, have in common with the galaxy. And we start to weave those things together until they seem to be so organized, we, can, we can't even bear it, right? And that's where it becomes divine. Right? God names the potency of that excess that can't be bound by the collection of the parts. And I think that's where they used mathematics and simple geometries, you're like triangles. You start to think about all the ways triangles come into play and all the amazing things they do and how perfect a perfect triangle is. And you start to go, oh my God, it blows your mind after just a few steps. And that mind-blowing quality is essential. It says here is a sacred, which is to say an overwhelming organizational power that exceeds your ability to track it, but which is super useful to you and should help guide the way you live. Yeah, there's a lot. There's that brings up so much that just real. I mean, you, you use the word what was it? Simplexity, um, which I find interesting because uh, a lot of kind of the a lot of the ways that mystical engagements occurred with visualization and geometries and 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 mathematics and whatnot, especially in like the Neoplatonic tradition, was this idea of simplicity um, rather than complexity. And I find that to be an interesting kind of contrast to where a lot of the conversation in these spaces is, because it seems to be greater and greater complexity, which requires greater and greater interactions of different things, et cetera. Whereas there's this mystical notion of like, no, like the, the ultimate is the most simple thing, you know, ever. And so I like the, the notion that you're bringing in here of simplexity, which is like the complexity that generates its own new unique holon that kind of is is simplex in its own nature but it is you know and of course the oneness in the in the manifold has been a perennial mystical question i wanted though to um to to bring in those things that those terms that you you just kind of uh compared which is spirituality and religion so we talked about spirituality and you just talked a little bit about how you see that relating to religion but explicitly spell that relationship out a little bit better um because i tend my my tendency is to use the word spirituality um i prefer that term and i i i feel that religion is another one of those words that has kind of a dirty connotation in our culture or society and spirituality has somehow managed to escape that in many ways. So I almost use spirituality as a stand-in for the word religion, but you seem to be using them more um, uh, intentionally. So what explain that a little bit more. Yeah, I, I've, I've evolved a particular take on, on these terms. And I, I, as a result of that take, I would say something like, the, the reason for the discomfort around religion, and this is a meta-modern critique of modernity and post-modernity, is that those two systems have thus far been pretty shitty in terms of organizing themselves, right? They haven't gotten the level of comprehensive integration stabilized through ritual um, that the previous kingdom societies often succeeded in doing. And if our culture was competent at organizing itself to the point at which it religionized, 
then you would be detecting that as a good, as a comfortable thing, as a real thing. The fact that it's not pulling that off means you're going, spirituality is really important. When I check the religion part, eh, I just don't see it. It's not happening there, right? And so uh, for me, it, this grew out of an attempt to do an integral analysis, an integral religious analysis, which is based on the idea that the um, amber blue traditional mythic membership style of society does not epitomize religion that epitomizes how they organized everything by uh, loyalty symbols by mythic narratives by large populist blocks of belief cults that that affirm a particular uh, text or a simplistic set of rules that's how they did every part of their life in, in those sorts of societies and modernity has to some degree either said yes all the people who did that we're going to group that as religion especially if it's big famous ones or we're going to say all of that's foolish and we've moved on. But they're essentially allowing that mythic membership in the Gebsarian terminology to be the definition. But if you want to define it in a, in a way that's multi-contextual and developmental, you have to say, what could religion possibly mean that would explain the things we call religion, but which also explains the religion that existed before religious traditions among people who do not identify with religious traditions and among all the different varieties uh, of religion that there are, right? So what's, what's religion if it can be pre-traditional, post-traditional, traditional, if sometimes it involves beliefs, other times it doesn't involve beliefs, what's the overarching identity there? And I see that as structurally analogous to what I said about spirituality in the individual. Within the individual, you're going to get, how am I going to personally encounter this numinous quality? Well, I've got to undertake some practices. And those practices uh, can be deconstructed and analyzed to be intersections and harmonizations between my parts, between my perception of the other and my perception of the self, between my left and right brain, between my conscious and unconscious, between my mind and heart, between my heart and my body, right? Or my chakras or whatever I want to use as the diagnostic tool to subdivide my systems. Religion is doing a very similar thing interpersonally, but it's going to have a different set of subsystems that have to be brought together, right? So what are those subsystems? Well, there's different ways to subdivide them, right? There's classes, there's races. Above all, I think there are genres, right? And you can say, well, science, politics, art, mysticism, poetry, it all has to come together. And that's what we see in the famous religious texts, a Bible or a Koran or the Upanishads. It's every kind of literature you could imagine in one. And so it overflows to the degree that it integrates these things. And like I was saying about Aristotelian science, there was a time, right, in the, in the high Renaissance, the, the Catholic infrastructure which superseded the national governments of Europe to some extent, amazingly, it was political, it was economic, it was mythological, it was scientific, it was artistic, right? We can, to me, it's amazing to think what would be the contemporary corollary of the Pope bringing Michelangelo in, right? A, a famed avant-garde degenerate, you're going to have him do, right? Might as well have Lady Gaga perform at the Vatican. There's uh there's this incredible capacity when religionization is occurring to draw in all the genres of cultural activity and say they're all together in this one epiphanic experience 
that turns us all on and moves us up to the next level of what cultural activity can be and what interpersonal relating can be. Uh, and I think it's probably gets harder and harder the more pieces your culture has, right? Mm. It's in a primitive society, it's easier to integrate 10 things than 10,000 things. I'll say that. I And that's sort of the next uh, domain, you know, that would be fascinating to explore in all these spaces is what, what is a metamodern religion look like? Um, because I mean, this is probably a question for a different day, but you've just got me thinking so many things here. And, um, you know, it's all, it is easier to kind of focus on spirituality. It's much more kind of what's happening within the individual and whatnot, but religion then to the degree that it's a social phenomenon that needs to integrate the, the various components of the society. Um, there's so many challenges around that, um, uh, that a task like that does seem to be uh, impossibly, um, you know, just impossible to attain seemingly. Uh, and yet, and yet, I mean, and I would also say there is something, you know, there's, there's a little bit of that, the, the, the dangerous recognition of the totalitarian possibilities, um, of, of that. And I think that Hansi's work actually kind of speaks to all that as well. Um, that, you know, trying to do something like that also risks many ways in which trying to bring these things together um, can be, you know, oppressive. But that's just, um, it makes me think, what what would that look like? And And is there also something about the way that our society is organized along this hyper-modern, commodified, you know, capitalist kind of uh uh, structure that that somehow is antagonistic towards something like an integration that it's sort of inherently fighting it or is there some way of of you know do we do we need to change fundamentally how our society is organized or is there some form of organization that's possible that we're heading towards that could integrate things still um those are just open questions but i'll um i have to think about that i was also just a, another thing that brought up what you know came out of what you were saying dante's divine comedy for me is the the best example even more so than the bible really in terms of the way that it's able to be this comprehensive compendium of like all knowledge and um in this truly sublime text uh but okay anyway so the, that's that's a that's a very fascinating distinction and i think it does also speak to why we aren't really in a position arguably to talk about metamodern religion um Whereas metamodern spirituality does seem, uh, it almost seems like you'd have to start there to even get a sense of what this kind of activity was before you could kind of complexify it. Um, you brought up uh, also the term of myth when you were talking about myth within the context of, of you know, blue amber uh, societies. But um, is it, yeah, how would you describe? How would you define myth in a way that that's that could speak to all these levels of development and and uh, in a more, you know, in a broader sense? Yeah, that's a big question. I, I think we have, uh, there's a tendency to think of this as top down, like whether we were, what, what would the religion be as if we could invent it and impose it, right? And like what's, and then we also think of myths as like somebody came up with this story and then it was disseminated. Uh, and that's a very, you know, it's a very literacy based model, but most of human history has not been literacy based. It, it's been, 
um, an emergent consequence of the oral interaction of beings and the production of ambiguous but intriguingly resonant concepts that invite uh, poetic reorganization over multiple generations. So I think the key thing, the key insight for me in terms of thinking myth in a metamodern sense is that it's not a conventional narrative, right? It's, um, it's a, a way of living that engages, it's a praxis that engages the edifying, the visceral, the energetic and poetic surround of generic ideas instantiated in colloquial language, which is present at every developmental phase, right? So that we... Uh, we as post monotheists <laughs> or as monotheists, right? That whole thing has, we've inherited a sense that we have the illuminated new advanced worldview and those pagan fools from before are very exotic and intriguing. And we almost wish we had such a colorful relationship to the world, but unfortunately they were also childish and primitive and made up these stupid explanatory fables. <laughs> Right. So that, that's kind of like the Christian and the scientific judgment of the pagan mandala of being. But part of that is reinforced by what I would think of as a, a faultiness in our understanding of what translation is supposed to be. We translate almost all the terms, but we leave some of them untranslated, right? We Just like we do with the Bible. Adam and Eve <laughs> and Eden, these are words in Hebrew and Aramaic. But we leave them untranslated, even though we translate all the other words, and that gives them the sense of being uh, cartoonish, of being character names, rather than words. If we would say humanity, and a man and creature live together in the garden of nature, that's prepositionally correct. It's poetic, but it's prepositionally correct. It's a real myth. We go, oh, right. It's the um, visceral mythic resonance of the generic terms that exist in our language, the way they existed in every language. And we tend to do this move now where we create a membrane where we get our colloquial language and they get the exotic thing. And we can either bring it over here and believe in it or not believe in it. But they wouldn't have heard it that way, right? The, the ancient Greek ear didn't hear um, Phobos is the son of Ares. They heard war creates fear when we would hear that too and go, yeah, that's true. But when we hear ourselves speak generically, we speak of war and love and the earth. It doesn't resonate in us viscerally and edifyingly the way we imagine the gods resonated in the pagan peoples, but it should. I think if we can undo that gap, we can come back in contact with what myth really is, which is not the... Um, promulgating of an explanatory fable, but it's really the um, lived emergence of the spiritually resonant qualities of colloquial generic abstractions exchanged between people and constantly provoking spontaneous poesis that builds up over time into something like fables. Then what's the role of metaphor in myth? I, I think it's intrinsic, right? I think that. Um... I, I asked that question because uh, so part of what you're you're saying sounds to me like if we could just hear the myths for you know the real colloquial language that they're using, it wouldn't sound like this person did this thing to this god. It would sound like just concepts doing things, and so and that sounds a lot like how we understand things, and even how we do science. 
But I do find there to be a very profound difference between the way that, you know, scientific explanations work and mythic explanations work. And, um, and there's something about the way that metaphor is used and employed. Uh, but yeah, so I just, I'm, I don't think that's what you're saying, but there's a sense in which, you know, I don't want to reduce, like if we just understood myth correctly, we would see that it was science or something like that. Um, but so, yeah. I think there's, um, again, like I was saying before, there's science at all the stages, right? So um, science is not inherently reductionistic. It's only if we're contemplating a science that's from a level that's below the level we're at, then it seems reductionistic. But if it's a science of the level we're at, then it's really juicy, really resonant. But I would say about metaphor that we often do half of the relationship between metaphor and what it signifies, which is we go, hey, a whole bunch of our concepts, if we analyze them critically, turn out to have metaphors built into them. Let's, let's be aware of that. We don't want to prejudice our concepts with metaphors. But at the same time, we don't complete the other half of the cycle, is how I would think about it, which is to really um, re-embrace the metaphorical quality of our concepts. Right. So it's not like we can just say, hey, what we mean by the earth is what they meant by Gaia. That's somewhat technically accurate, but we have to do another step, which that we think they were doing. We don't know that they were doing it, but we project our potential to take that step onto them, which is they encountered what we call earth as if it was poetically rich, as if it was a transcendental opportunity, as if it was one of the um, guiding psychophysical principles where if you don't relate to it in visceral resonance, you will personally and socially start to go astray, right? So if we heard that, if we felt that, if we really embodied the metaphorical dimension of earth, when we thought the concept earth, then we'd be closer to uh, bridging that gap. How, um, how, can myth function now um in terms of when i think about the myths i think you're right that there's often i tend to associate it with that kind of blue traditional um mythic minded kind of uh approach there's this sense of like here's the great book here's the great story um and i feel like there's something in me and the other people I speak to who share this kind of longing for an element of that, but without that kind of um, uh, dogmatism that needs to necessarily, you know, that doesn't need to necessarily accompany that. Um, because I, I see um, in some ways, one of the greatest challenges facing us is this actual coming together, this integration to create that whole, which right now it seems like, right, we're, we're just, we're very fragmented the complexity is growing, but at the same time, there hasn't been a, that sim simplexity that sort of, you know, come from that. And so maybe naively I've thought, well, what if we just had that great story that could, that could be a function to bring people together, but I don't necessarily want to do that in a regressive way that just says, Hey, let's bring back this sort of blue Amber thing again so that we can all come together. Cause that would be a, that would be really bad. And you'd probably get something like fascism, you know, where, yeah. Um, and we don't want that. <laughs> so um, 
in what way can myths, uh, here's, I guess, a way of phrasing the question, in what way can myth work to be integrative, to be unifying uh, and efficacious in, in that way, but not in a sort of a blue amber mythic traditional mode? Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe that isn't the right question, but that's, that's how I'll try to get you to talk about it. Well, where my mind goes with it is the need to be um, less controlling than we think we might have to be, right? That amber society is very often, we visualize this pyramid where it's, it's vacuuming things up and then it's authoritarianly uh, imposing something, right? You go, this is the book now. And it didn't make that book up itself. It gathered that book from many sources, right? So in reality, it's not, it didn't just create it and impose it it actually still emerged from many sources and they put an official stamp on it reinforced with violence or something like that. Right. But it took a long time. It didn't just start. It wasn't like, right. The, the eye at the top of the pyramid didn't just tell you the story and then everybody imposed it. It was cultivated over a long period of time. It was an emergent property of many distributed praxis elements. Right. And I think we have to have the, um, the ease, the, the awareness of the distribution and the praxis and the organic nature and say, what are the practices and what are the distributed individual myth production events that if done rightly can over time congeal into a story, right? There's no one person or group of people or historical source that will be the effective story in a multi-contextual developmental uh, quasi-reality of some kind. We've got to grow the one that we need. And I think that has a lot to do with embracing a variety of traditions. It has a lot to do with becoming newly shamanic and newly colloquial in our understandings. But I think it also has a lot to do with individual experimentation, where, where how we grow these experiences surrealistically, psychodynamically. Um, one thing I'll say is, you know, when I, when I think of Apollo, I think of the phrase nice lighting. Right, because Apollo is not really the sun god. That's Helios. Apollo is the god of the sunlight, of of scenes bathed in a charming light that make them look really intact and together to the point where reality is transfigured, where it seems as if the world has a soundtrack. Right, like that's what the lyre is. It's like a cinematic experience. So when I'm if I'm driving and I come over the hill and I see just a gorgeous scene of the trees and they're bathed in the evening light, I say, "Nice lighting, Apollo." And I think to myself, this is what Apollo means, right? They weren't saying, hey, that cartoon character named Apollo, who we were told to believe is a god, <laughs> he did this, right? That might be a poetic unpacking a person comes up with in that moment. But in reality, it's a universal human experience that is recognized and languaged, right? And my, my experience of bringing it forth, of evoking it, nice lighting, Apollo, it's not implausible that generations down the road that combines with other people's genuine experience of the underpinnings of the mythic narrative to organically create a narrative that's up to speed for the reality we have to inhabit. And I think if we try to impose something or use a pre-given one, it won't be rich enough to map the emerging world. We have to do a praxis that affords us the potential of a more spontaneous mapping over time. Yeah. Though to use that example, I mean, is it to what degree is it justified to then engage that experience in a second person way and really 
and really be genuine and say nice lighting Apollo. Like, right. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which, as you're saying, you can, you can use that language to, to uh, engage with or articulate that event, but to what degree is using that language itself performative of, of that earlier, what we were kind of talking about the instanti instantiating of the God and, and, and bringing, bringing that out. Um, I, I feel like, uh, I, the, I'd like, I don't know how to really break all this apart, but it, it seems to me like that is a meaningful thing to do. And yet, I don't, it's very hard for me to find anywhere inside of me that like, um, wants there to be an Apollo God, you know, uh, that, that image doesn't necessarily resonate with me to, to the point that would lead me to want to engage enough in the performative act of sort of, you know, actually offering praise to Apollo when that happens. And yet it seems to me in the same kind of move that, um, that lies behind speaking second person to, you know, the Godhead in some ways. And I can't quite differentiate the two. Uh, and maybe it is just a matter of preference, or maybe there is something different between sort of, you know, small G God and big G God. I don't know. I, does that make sense? I think so. Like uh, my take is um, all the basic grammatical modes are valid, right? I think the person mode is as valid as the thing mode as is as valid as the self mode and that they are all if you start to see them with a post-conventional uh, metamodern integral level whatever lens they're all going to be um, slightly offset right slightly incomplete the boundaries are dotted lines rather than solid lines right this is the uh, there's an intrinsic irony at the higher levels which is not um not undermining but amplifying right so we go yeah, it's not exactly Apollo. It's not exactly a God. It's not exactly a thing either. And I'm not exactly me, right? Everything is not exactly itself. This is what I call the metaphysics of adjacency, but everything is contextually offset or relationally constituted. And that we appreciate that in, at the higher echelons of perceiving this. Now, people as they grow might experience a need for myth in a more concrete sense. But the one that we would satisfy us, I think, and could be one that we would promulgate to general benefit is one in which the, the open-endedness is intrinsic, just like an advanced Buddhist master might have to explain to you that even emptiness is empty of emptiness, right? So you'd be like, wait, what? That's right. It's Godel's incompleteness theorem. There's no self-consistent system that can stand on its own. It all has to be justified by something else at some point because there's no there's no enclosure and that's one of the things in a metaverse that you see there is no perfect enclosure and so we're expecting to um revalorize and re-shamanize our experience to the point where it would be rich enough to almost semi-spontaneously congeal into new mythic narratives but to do that we have to do it in the way that is true to what we consider truth to be which is evolutionarily incomplete and relational, but yeah. no less valid for that. I think maybe the difference in my mind between the driving up onto the Apollo scene is that I know or think I know 
actually what's going on there. Like I can explain that the light is coming from the star, you know, however many million miles away and its light is here. And at the angle I'm coming that the light refracts and it creates a certain color and it looks very beautiful. I think that that's different when you relate to the ultimate nature of the universe, which is profoundly more mysterious. And, and then it's sort of like it, for me, the engagement with that at the second person level seems more of an open possibility. Um, I'll, I'll have to think more about all that and return to it. Um, but, but it's an interesting, it's a very interesting thing. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's throw out a few more terms here. Um, Let me say one thing about sure. what you just personally, yeah, I'd yeah. love to get into these terms, which is like, I don't know what your personal history is with a mystical experience. I've had a lot of different, very interesting events of different kinds. And um, there's a way in which I think all these levels of things are understood to interpenetrate each other. Like, uh, one of the very interesting things about organized Hinduism, once the <laughs> Persians came in and conquered that region, was they said, hey, you can worship you can worship whatever God you want, individually, your family, your tribe, your village, whatever you want. You have an Ishta, you have a local version, but we're going to say that that's really a version of Shiva, Vishnu, or Brahma, <laughs> which are all really one somehow. So... Every god is a holographic instantiation of God in some partial context, right? It's not like, you know, Apollo is a form of Zeus, let's say, right? So, or they're all they're all unfolded in all the levels, and you can have all the kinds of relationships with them at all the levels, because what the uh, the pantheon part of the mythos is doing is trying to describe the general architecture that you can find anywhere. Right, as a profound meditator or or as a drug taker would find, you know, you flip open a book and you look into it, and if you look into it in the right state of mind, it's gonna oh, there's the one and the, it's it's in all the other parts, but each of the parts has its own flavor, and I'm involved in in enacting that. It's amazing. <laughs> all of that is the pantheon, and so each each of those things is dependent upon some more fundamental thing that justifies it. Yeah, I, I think, though, when you kind of take it to try to use an extreme example to bring it to its absurd, you know, uh, conclusion, if it's like there is a way to which in which I could think of this glass as God. Now, at a mystical level, from kind of what you're talking about, that's entirely fair. Like, yes, you know, it's everywhere and in, all, and in me and, and it shines through and it's in some way, you know, like an avatar represented here in some miniature form and et cetera, et cetera. But also at sort of like a mundane, imminent, how I have to live my life level, it would be kind of pathological, I think, if I treated this glass like the deity and like prayed to the glass or something like that, spoke to the glass. Um, and so it might kind of be, I don't know if this uh, term applies or, you know, like a distinction without a difference or something, but there's a way to which, um, you know, when you were talking about God and spirit and the re relationship to complexity, like this glass is not as complex as that higher super level complexity. And, and 
it it actually its complexity seems to be well to say what you were saying earlier about you know not wanting to be minerals right like you are of a higher complexity than the minerals i am of a higher complexity than this glass so to refer to this glass as in some way being akin to like the godhead seems like it's 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 missing something there and if you were to take that up a little bit further that's where i would locate kind of in the middle sphere that apollo example it's sort of like it's it's something that can be explained purely materialistically even as it's felt phenomenologically as being very profound and yet because of the level of complexity maybe there i don't know what it is it's sort of it it loses it's experienced maybe as an as as a carrier of that numinous but it isn't the numinous itself it's just it's the sunlight and again it's not just the sunlight you know like that's it's the sunlight and it's amazing but then speaking to that as in a second person way I don't know. It, there's a move there that happens. And again, I, 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 I'm thinking about this all now, so I'm going to have to think more about it and see how, why that doesn't quite land for me in the same way. Um, so I'll just have to come back to that, but it seems like there is a, a, a distinction. Maybe as you work up to higher and higher levels of complexity, it's like the thing that will command your, your, your awe in that truly numinous way needs to be, much higher even in a level of complexity it's got to it's got to exceed your current mm. experience of the total set of possible cognitive objects mm. right? and you can you can get glimpses of that at lower stages mm -hmm. right you get partial like oh when you look at the glass you're like oh yeah i you know something which is actually me in a sense is organizing all these things into the salient experience of a glass and that replicates some of the organizational excess thing that we're describing but it doesn't truly epitomize it for me and until it enwraps my entire reality yes now i think that the apollo thing is is like that as well because we don't just mean the sunlight we mean the total the total scene man right to the point where my the interactions that i'm unable to track harmonize together so well that it exceeds my cognitive processing capacity in an in a, a nonetheless coherent fashion and then i'm drawn up into deity in a particular flavor and i could go into gotcha. it in another flavor but when i talk about god itself it's it's the thing that actually does exceed it for me wherever i am that that's helpful yeah that makes a lot of sense um Okay, cool. Well, all right. So, so, so moving on here and actually sort of uh, a, in a slightly teleological way. Um, so how, what, in, in the context of redefining and reimagining terms, how can we still meaningfully speak of terms like heaven? Um, and I guess by extension, hell, um, and shall I couple hell, as Hamlet would say, um, heaven, hell, afterlife. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, there's a very natural way in which those things go together, but there's also a very plausible reason for decoupling them, which is that we speak of heaven and hell as uh, subtle types of experience that penetrates everyone's reality all the time, right? It was just heaven or it was like hell on earth. And we mean something very specific by that, which is not quite the same as what's the ontological status of the afterlife. Right. I think there's, I mean, the first time I ever took a crack at this years ago was in, in the integral 
way of thinking, which was if you had more lines at the same level, you would get a more heavenly outcome, right? And then you would have each, each level could have its own, right? Orange modernism could be a heaven. If everybody in modernity was at the modern level in all the parts of themselves and also in the world, that would be the modern heaven. <laughs> and people did. You go back and they, oh, this would be the perfect world, right? And then pluralists have their perfect world and everybody's had their perfect world. And it very often describes the harmonious coupling of that same kind of evolutionary achievement across the totality of trajectories at which it could be achieved. And the failure to do that allows for a destabilization that starts to run back in the other direction. And I don't think, I don't think it's entirely foolish to, dis, to point out the similarity between everybody's depiction of hell and the earth before the biosphere emerged. Right? You go, hey, it's dark and sulfurous and mineralish, and there's giant tectonic things and fire, and it's lifeless and airless. You're like, yeah, right. Like this planet actually was and it still is underneath the living stuff. And so that all living things intuit that if they regressed far enough, which will happen to them at some point, they're going to be in that horrible condition. So that hell is hell is in a way the the telos of regression for wherever you're at, right? Like if you expect to have a modern society and it does a German 1930s thing and starts regressing to a theocratic uniformity, uh, ethnocentric dogma, you're like, oh, this is hell on earth. But if you lived in ancient Egypt and you had a theocratic, uniformed, symbolic, ethnocentric society, you'd be like, oh, this is fine. This is what I was expecting. <laughs> so it's relative regret. It's the telos of relative regression played out poetically as a vision of a world, I think, versus the uh, reciprocal benevolent telos that could be played out. And I think that's heaven and hell. The afterlife is a much more complicated topic uh, because... Famously, we don't have any data, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We could say, you know, the integral way of speaking is that there's these different states, which might be considered domains. So you lose the gross realm, you maybe still got the subtle realm to whatever extent that can hold itself together. Um, I think we have to, to be true um, heirs and successors to the postmodern right, to the Heidegger thing, we have to be like, hey, we don't know, and we're never going to know, and we have to take that unknowingness seriously to be authentic. That doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. We don't have proof that there isn't an afterlife of some kind. We should probably keep all the major options on the table, try to look at it objectively, but for ourselves, we have to really accept the possibility of the end of all possibilities as a way of being authentic toward our own death whatever that turns out to be and that that's that's faith right mm -hmm. so when there are people who have all sorts of i mean the closest kind of evidence data that we can have are people who have say near-death experiences um certain kinds of yeah ndes and coma experiences and whatnot um even i guess actually on very high doses of certain uh entheogens and whatnot uh now what do you make of those accounts? Are they are they something that we should try to extrapolate from, base some kind of working, you know, theory 
from, even though we, we won't have any kind of certainty? Um, or is it better to just sort of be like, yeah, I don't know what to make of any of that. Um, yeah. You're never going to know what to make of any of that, right? Like that stuff should all be approached scientifically, which is to say we should be as rigorous as we can and as open to hypotheses as possible and inventing new hypotheses because we have souls and we don't have souls that's a little blunt. <laughs> We're already familiar. Are there any new ideas on the subject? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So like we should be coming up with new hypotheses and we should be trying to advance that study as rigorously as possible and not foreclosing any of the options. However, we're never really going to know in the same way that we never really know anything. Right. Do how, how much proof do I have that this is a finger? Well, I've heard about it for years. <laughs> I've got some phenomenological experience, but still there's going to be a huge um, falling away, which I think we as metamoderns have to ironically embrace as the structure of what reality is, right? And I, I, would, I would make a mathematical analogy here, right? That we, like pi is a very specific, very useful ratio. And when you start to try to define it, it goes irrationally forever. You're never going to get there. And everything, every identity is constructed, for me, is constructed in a similar way. It's always going to trail off as a vanishing point that you can't get on top of. There's going to be a hole in that boat. Uh, so at some point, even if somebody said, hey, we've got absolute proof um, that there's something like an afterlife, at least for some people, under some conditions or whatever it is. And you go, yeah, but how do I know I can believe you? And how do I know what evidence means? And how do I even know what life is such that something could be after it, right? The, these, these open doorways are going to be there endlessly. So that's what we need to make peace with existentially. Nonetheless, what really happens to subjective experience following death, that's a matter for one or another kind of experimental verification, even if that experiment just turns out to be your death. It's interesting because... I would say so much of the religions heretofore have been really focused on the question of what happens after, whether it's, I want to make sure I end up in heaven and not hell, or I need to make sure I live a good life here so that I'm, I get a good rebirth, et cetera. Or even just, you know, I want to get out of this whole life thing entirely. Um, and it's interesting to consider that where the direction that spirituality and religion, I was going to say, are going, but I think they've already gone there is, is very much away from a model like that. Um, and do you, would you chalk that up to a certain kind of developmental growth in our ways of thinking about these things? Um, and, or is there some way in which religious and spiritual questions are somehow inherently bound up with these afterlife questions? Yeah. I, I would say that there is a huge developmental component to it, right? That it's the, the story of death is told according to the general cognitive and experiential capacity of the people who are telling those stories to each other. When that changes, then the story changes. Um, there's also a factor that religion serves cultural purposes, right? It's an integration of all these factors. It's yes, it's metaphysical and yes, it's existential, but it's also political, it's also economic. Religion enfolds all of these things together. Uh, and there are ways in which the social layout of a given society is reinforcing itself by telling a certain story. And I don't think that makes it any less religious. 
I think that's something religion has to do. It's just that our religion now would do it differently than their religion then. What interests me a lot is the difference between uh, telos and nihilism, right? Where the, the telos part we talked about earlier, stories about death have to help us engage a developmental life. And not only development, but a developmental and transcendental life. So, so that it has to say, hey, there's an urgency here. You're either, you might get fucked up and be reborn as a flea, or you might end up in hell. So it's really important, in addition to all the things you pragmatically feel are serious, to take seriously the trajectory of your developmental depth as a human being and your emotional and meaningful transformation and, and where you can go and the other states you can access you have to keep that in mind seriously in mind because that's what makes your life worthwhile however the contamination of that necessity with uh the glorification of death or with the i mean the way I would say what nihilism is, is anytime something's a replaced with nothings, right? It's a self-nullification drive. And Nietzsche was a really good, or maybe the first big diagnostician to try to point this out and say, hey, if you think of God as something other than all of reality, which means outside of or before everything that's real, you've defined him as not real. And if you think the best thing about life is something that happens when you're dead, you've anti-valued life which is a weird thing for you as a living being to do some kind of pathology has come into the culture and we can see its effects and the, it's been a displacement of value into the non-existential phase right there may be an important value in death or there may not but the value of being alive is is not something that should be undermined by the value of a hypothetical death world and that that's evidence of uh, a corrupt or mismanaged or limited social configuration, which asks people to um, valorize the undermining of the worthwhileness of their own existence. Yeah, a hundred percent. Now, and and it's interesting though because as much as I agree with all of that, it's also been one of my questions about. Um, you know, if religion is doing this thing of integrating society in a, in a salutary way that's producing, you know, an overflow of meaning and, and, and has constructive and complexifying uh, outcomes, etc., cetera, um, then there can, be, there can be stories that we tell that help that process or hinder that process. And in some ways, that is outside the question of truth. And this is all stuff that Nietzsche was aware of too and speaking to. Um, and I've, I've wondered since I read Nietzsche, whether, whether it's possible that the flip side is true as well, that if you consider the way that this modernization has led people to basically look at the earth as a, a raw materials, basically for their own consumption, because well, you only get one life. You might as well be the most comfortable and the most happy and the most pleasured here. And then you die, you know, uh, we, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. We die that kind of approach. Um, and in that sense, it could be argued that lacking a, an afterlife mythology is, um, is a big reason for what lies behind our, 
our our destruction of the planet and our and our lack of integration. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I find it interesting that that there can be ways in which something a story that motivates you to keep in mind all sorts of things, including what the world um, that the world is not here just for your for your life's benefit and that you need to do certain things and behave in a certain way for your long-term well-being, which includes, you know, not just this life, et cetera, et cetera, that that can create an ethos that can be more supportive of a, of a healthy society and a healthy uh, engagement with the earth um, that kind of gives you the opposite of what you'd expect um, because it's, it winds up being collectively more life-affirming um so i don't know that's that's an idea i have around these things and i don't know i mean it certainly has a big impact in terms of what myths i feel like need to be um or what myths will and should maybe be if we can even say should about myths um you know propagated and disseminated in our current context and in in an attempt to try to do something about what's going on with the with these you know the multi-pronged crises that face us um, that was just a, a reflection on that. Uh, but yeah, I guess I'll just, I'll just say that. I, um, I don't think it's that there's no effect, um, from the stories we tell each other, but I think we should consider the effect is not as great as we have encouraged ourselves to believe and that the society of, um, literate authors and thinkers and scholars and journalists and priests and right that we really live still largely under the domain of the modern uh, authorial system in which the authoring of a more or less useful tale and its dissemination to the public uh, is is the way we think about these things and I think that that's really framed by the the technology the communications technology of a couple hundred year period and is not necessarily generally applicable that the more applicable thing is to have some skepticism toward the the influence of narratives not just skepticism about the reality of narratives and meta narratives but skepticism about the actual influence of narratives and meta narratives relative to the accumulating results of praxis that um, just like I was saying, you know, people can have a sacred relationship to know God as one of the names of God. If you are going into the forest and connecting with nature, if you are learning more in multiple parts of yourselves about how the biosphere functions and how the cosmos functions and what states are available to you as a being and what ways you can more or less constructively enter into meaningful exchanges with others, then you are becoming religionized. You're becoming transformed. And you could tell all kinds of different stories about that. I don't think it's unlimited. I think they'll end up grouping into certain categories, maybe archetypally, but you have an enormous variation that will fall outside of any given narrative. And also any given narrative may or may not produce the effects you want. Because one of the things we see in the developmental models, the integral type models, is people can take the very same words and concepts and act on them from a completely different level of development and seemingly sabotage the whole affair. So I think it's much more about promulgating the practices out of which the preconditions 
for this emerge. Um, maybe I'll just say two personal things. One is I, I have a very vivid memory. Maybe we even talked about this once of taking one of my goddaughters to her swimming lessons and they determined she was too young. She could have swimming lessons next year, but this year we could teach her the skills, right? Holding your head, moving your arm so that next year, if she wants to swim, she'll just be able to put those together. We taught her the pieces. And I think teaching people the pieces out of which uh, a transformational and useful mythological and sacred relationship to the world can grow. That's the main thing. The, the proto skills are more essential than the narratives. The other thing I wanted to touch on from before, which is just so I can feel more authentic, which is an indulgent motive to some degree. I want to say that uh, there's a part of me trying to be as reasonable and objective as I can. And that's not necessarily the same as what it looks like if I describe my life, right? So I, I'm, I'm trying to speak in a very fair way about the afterlife, but I totally act as if there is one. If I analyze my behavior, I'm living toward that and assume something's going to happen. And I have some particular assumptions about that when I analyze my behavior. And so I think if beliefs are understood as articulations of the implications of behavior, I totally believe in an afterlife in a certain sense, but that's not necessarily the same as how I think we collectively should discuss it in a reasonable fashion. That's an in a really interesting distinction. Um, one I'll also have to, I mean, I, and I can appreciate, you know, the, the uh, wisdom to doing that at the same time. I also find it interesting that um that to speak somehow to the abstract notion of like how we should engage a topic versus what we ourselves find salient salutary and whatnot. Um, I would, yeah, I'm curious about how and why there might be a distinction between those two, but I also, I can, I can certainly relate to that because um there is a very different thing between, and, and maybe this relates to what, what degrees of evidence we, you know, find applicable in different kinds of conversations. There's so much in my life that I go off of, but if I were pressed, you know, why do I do that? Or, or, you know, do I have some theory behind this or is there something that I could make this universalizable or something? I would just say, no, it's just, uh, this is what it is. Um, and so I guess there's a degree to which that is all kind of uh, idiosyncratic to ourselves, the wisdoms that we pick up from our own lives versus what we would, you know, present that way. But the, the other thought that came up for me while you were talking was um, I'm intrigued by this distinction between teaching the pieces and, and telling the story because um, you're exactly right. And I completely agree with you that these stories can get taken maps can get taken stories. You know, the fact that, you know, some people will say, this religion's all about love. And then you can look at the history of what people did with it and be like, well, that doesn't quite seem to, you know, a lot of people certainly, certainly got a different impression. Um, and so there is undeniably an issue with presuming that the story will be kind of foolproof and it will communicate the things. But then the question for me becomes, well, how do we communicate the pieces? And you're talking about practice and I get that. Um, and maybe there is just a degree to which certain practices are, are more foolproof than what you can, you know, interpret from a story. Um, 
So I'm intrigued by that distinction. And that's also something I'll have to take away and think more about, because if that is true, which it certainly is to some degree, we should be thinking a great deal about the practices that we should be um, presenting, less so about the, you know, it's more like we should be thinking more about ritual construction and maybe less about scriptural construction, um, which, you know, I, I, my own personal focus has tended to be more on the latter. So um, uh, it's, it's just, it's something I'll have to give some thought to, but um, anyway. Uh, There's yeah. lots of ways those interweave, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, philosophy for me is primarily praxis, which is um, it's undertaken by philosophers in order to change themselves in a certain way. Right. But it looks to the outsider like it's an individual dealing with ideas and trying to find out what they think about things. And same with writing and narrative. It, it, it's a little bit blurry what the relationship is between narrative and praxis, because narrative is itself a praxis. And then there's a narrative about the relevance of praxis. So they, they blare out to some degree. That's helpful, too, because I part of the part of the narrative for me is the construction of narratives. It's the praxis of narrative construction. And so, um, you know, I would be, I don't want or where a lot of my ideas are aiming at is not this idea that, Oh, someone should come up with some master narrative that we can all adopt. You know, it's more like um, having experienced this, the, the, the kind of healing and an insightful quality of narrative construction. That is a narrative that I'm trying to, to propagate. Um, and uh, which, of course, creates its own issues and topics for another day. But um, I think we should be coming together around a, um, a multi-phraseology narrative about praxis inculcation. Right there. I mean, one of the famous phrases from Hegel, the mysteries of the ancient Egyptians were mysteries to the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> right. They didn't necessarily have a story that perfectly organized what they were doing. But they were doing something. They had a system for promulgating the practices, the rights, the kind of attitudinal positionings that led to the production of what we now look back on as, as a sacred uh, moment of civilizational history. That's interesting. Um, any final thoughts or final terms you'd like to throw out and redefine or reimagine for us? Mm. Uh, no, let's see anything in specific. You know, I, you know, I think there's a potentially great value in redefining these terms or deepening the definition of these terms. And I think everybody gets that in a very visceral way. Like, you know, you, you go, oh, yeah, by the age of four, a child has learned 100,000 words. You're like, great. I learned the word forest. But I was in my 30s. When I was in the woods, I was like, oh, this is a forest. <laughs> right mm. the whole notion of developmental depth suggests that you have to um, reimagine the understanding and implications of terms by adding new degrees of salience that you gain through experience and the organization of experience and i think that's true of everything right demons heretics infidels remorse sin all these things have a developmental depth capacity and our ancestors were not morons Right. The wisest of our ancestors are not people we have trivially overcome with contemporary knowledge. It's not like you're better than Descartes because you went to university in the 21st century. Likewise, all of the people who put the work in to be a spiritualized human being throughout history who related to and used these words, they're our ancestors and they weren't dummies. So it's worthwhile thinking 
how deep can you go with these things? Mm -hmm. I, and I completely agree. And I think that that could, that does kind of bring us to the last issue here, which is what's to be done about the, uh, the, the issue of miscommunication, misunderstanding, and the proliferation of so many different definitions for these terms. Um, you know, I was thinking like, what's to stop someone from, if I were to say, I need to follow the will of God, interpreting that in some, you know, kind of very hyper traditionalist vein. But I was thinking about you too, because there's from the get go of pretty much all my interactions with you, I've never assumed anything that uh, would suggest that you, you know, it, in any way engage naively with spiritual topics. Like there's a, there's a way in which it's almost a false argument to think like, well, what if people misunderstand me? I think there's a lot that does come across in the, you know, in the reading between the lines of how people are using the terms and, and, and supplementing them with other kinds of language, contextualizing them where necessary. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, two people have a conversation and they, they walk away and they, they actually didn't understand each other at all because it, it does become pretty clear, um, you know, that people are, are meaning different things by these terms. I guess I wonder though, um, maybe a, a, a different issue, but related is as there is a precipitous and continued steady decline of traditional religiosity, um, what is the best way to, um, to engage people in conversations around these ideas in which they're not immediately put off because of the, the concerns about, uh Oh, he's talking about God, you know, or something like that. Um, which is something I have to dance around a lot. I mean, I just had a friend visiting and we were reading, you know, poetry and he loves literature and many of the things that he's interested in get to ultimate human concerns and whatnot. And yet I found that the language of spirituality was a very uncomfortable one. Um, so for all the overlap, it was like, okay, well, I need to be able to say this in a way where I'm not using words like God, spirit, you know, telos, even things like that. So broadly speaking, what are we, what do we do about this? Um, linguistic impasse um, where it's possible to reclaim these words, but it certainly will take a lot of effort and we risk a lot of miscommunication um, or, um, you know, where and when is it better to, to just simply speak more in, in our explanatory mode without uh, relying on the symbols as, as they've been handed down. Well, as the hopefully heirs and successors of post-modernity, we should assume that it's context-dependent, right? And part of that context is the traditional religious distinction between the esoteric and the exoteric, right? Or, you know, the Buddhists talk about the three jewels and the Sangha, they're, they're your peer group, right? And you want to be able to confirm with each other that you mean pretty much the same things by certain terms. So you can go in really in depth. But when you go among the people, you don't make that assumption. You have to figure out what context you're in, where you're coming from with them. And there are different skills that might help with that, depending on where they're at. You might have to learn their mythological language and use it, but impute more depth into it. You might have to shift from 
a, a nominal to a descriptive language, I think is really useful, right? I, I might've told you this before, but I had a very interesting interaction one time with a Mormon and he said, you know, would you be willing to talk about God? I said, yeah, but I'm suspicious of language. Please describe what you're talking about without saying the word God, and I would be happy to discuss it, right? Because we get lost in the labels we put on things. And if you can describe the architecture of what you're saying, then the other person at least knows what you're talking about. And you're not going to get hung up by disagreeing with each other on the general potential alternatives of the terminology. And then there's the experiential dimension, which is somebody says they believe in God, they don't believe in God, whatever. You can say to them, hey, this happened to me, and this is how it seemed when it happened. And I understand it might not be exactly how it seemed to me, but it happened, and this is how it seemed, right? Everybody gets that in a very simplistic way. It's like saying, around here, we call those white oaks, right? <laughs> like, to me, it seemed like I beheld the face of God. I'm not saying I did, <laughs> but I sure looked like it was the face of God <laughs> to me. <laughs> That's very relatable. Mm. It's very folksy. You don't even have to be a complicated relativist to get that. And you used a phrase earlier, you said God or something like that, right? That really opens up <laughs> a lot of things, especially uh -huh. in postmodern or post-postmodern cultural contexts where the where God in quotes is as good or maybe even better than God without quotes, where you say like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's spirit. Maybe it's something else. Who? It was a whatever. But this is the kind of whatever that it was and, and what it means to me and what I think that might be useful for. Mm -hmm. So there's a vagueness. There's a personalness. Uh, there's a descriptive rather than nominal. There's a distinction between the in-group and the out-group. And then there's also um, an adaptation to more flexible terminology like if I can think archetypally about the goddess or the Lord, <laughs> then I, that can include anybody's specific version. And I can talk down to their version, so to speak, and they can upload things to me from their version. And we don't have to contradict each other. I'm just using a bigger frame that I've chosen because it's malleable. So all, that's my uh, cluster of approaches. <laughs> it makes me think of uh, how you hear a lot of language uh folks will say, well, you know, I just felt like the universe was looking out for me. Now, replace universe with, you know, God, and I think the same sentiment is there, but I feel like what's interesting is that to that person who said that, uh, if you were to say, oh, you mean God, they might be like, well, not quite. And if someone who does, you know, believe in God heard that, they'd, they'd, they'd get upset and they'd, and they'd say, well, why, why do they talk about the universe? This is God they're talking about. And I guess I just mentioned that only because it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate reality of the divergences in meaning. Um, and there are lots of tools as you're pointing out that we can use to try to get around those sorts of distinctions. Um, and maybe part of the wisdom in trying to reclaim these words is that we don't just throw another one into the mix <laughs> to further, you know, bifurcate. Um, so what I refer to as the Algorth. Is... <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's like those Gnostic, uh, Gnostic myths, yeah. which, you know, that... there's something to that though, because I think, um, you know, rubbing up against people who have different nominal religions and different languages than you is an ancient human experience. It didn't just start in the sixties. Right. So inter, interculture, 
interculturality um, understands, and there have been many syncretic religious phenomena in human history that understand multiple terminology and and gesture, right? That if I, I mean, if I go, hey, this is a sacred feather, everybody knows exactly what I mean. And then if I go, well, for my people, it's sacred because it represents, suddenly I've lost half the audience, right? But the gesture itself, get uh -huh. every, because we all come equipped with the technology to appreciate that. And I could say to them, this is what some people refer to as God, what some people might call the universe. And let me explain to you what I personally think the implications of that are, then I'm going to occupy the priestly function by doing that. So I think that's all super appropriate to a multicultural planet. But I, I would want to say one more thing about this, which is the fear of God, the fear of the classical terminology. We haven't really broached that, right? So it's one thing to say, I would prefer to call it the universe. I, maybe I prefer to use a third person rather than a second person lens. That's totally valid. But why are you doing that? Is it because you really appreciate the sacred dimension of materiality? Or is it because in the back of your heart, you're like, oh, I don't want to go to that place I think people go when they use the word God. That might be a little too overwhelming for me. Mm -hmm. I refuse the energetic stimulation. I refuse the gestural embodiment mode that I fear might come upon me if I accepted the extravagant terms, right? That, that fear has to be therapeutically undermined because we have to be able to go to those places. We have to be able to be sublime and superlative in our modality to access any of these things, even if we call them things or gods or selves. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. For, for me, speaking just of myself, and I know many people who feel similarly, um, it's not a fear of evoking the divine so, so much as it is that it's an appreciation for the reality of the divine and not wanting to entangle that with the negative associations of the past. It's very much like a trauma. Um, you know, I think of maybe someone, I don't know if, if there's someone who's, well, I mean, the father, let's say, you know, you're abused by the father. Um, that's going to really mess with your whole notion of fathers and being paternal and all of that. And yes, it's important to therapeutically work through that to be able to, to embody a paternal archetype for lack of a better term. If you, you know, want to go into that direction and, and say, be a father, but there's, there's probably going to be a lot of processing in terms of, of what that, what the, what the father meant to you versus what you want it to be. And, um, so I, I feel it's very much from that vein. I know that, I mean, for, for people, the word God is triggering or certainly things like Jesus or, you know, salvation or what have you. Um, and that's just the tradition I know best, but there's a very real way in which the language and it's that Martin Buber quote, really, it's just, it's so heavily laden. It's weighed to the ground. It's in the dust and bears the burden of what people have done with it. Um, that, it's 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 literally i guess you could say it's the profanation of the sacred and in order to genuinely engage the sacred modality again you've got to cleanse that in some way um and you know so like the for me i had to write a whole epic poem about the death of that old god and the rebirth and you know 
the baptism of a new one um, just to kind of clean that. Um, but I think for other people, it might be easier to just forego the language entirely. Um, but I agree ultimately with what you're saying that if it's stemming from a place of sort of a timidity to engage with these ideas because of how powerful they are, um, that's a different impetus. But my concern is for what do we do with, with how uh, disturbed and profaned and, and polluted this language has become and how can we engage with it authentically in a way that it still shines forth again. Um, and that's, that to me requires a, a big project. Yeah, how can you be, how can you be holy in Babylon? Like there's, there's a confusion of peoples in terms and you have to bring forth some kind of coherent invocation of the spirit under those conditions. And uh, I appreciate that you brought up trauma because um, yeah, it's a very slippery topic that as a species, we're still only just learning about. But in general, if you get too much of something or get it too soon, then even if it's a good thing, it's traumatic. Like there's nothing wrong with sex, but sex with a kid wrecks them in some way even mm -hmm. if it seems like they were to like it mm -hmm. it, it fucks them up fuck right it ruins something about their integrity right and same with religion should you give religion to kids well are they ready or are you fucking up their integrity and there's going to be a wobble in their system for the rest of their lives because mm -hmm. you told them your ideas too soon so that's you we've got to be really cautious and stop perpetuating these trauma cycles intergenerationally even when we think there's some kind of virtue involved, we've got to have the, the moral courage to live through the cognitive dissonance and the emotional uncertainty of holding back on things, even if we think they're virtuous. And I think there's a lot of room to, um, to try to heal, to do a, like a, a theotherapeutics, right? Um, I like that. Uh, it's in, I'm thinking of Forrest Gump. If you ever saw that where he goes out in the shrimp boat and captain Dan has no legs and he's up there screaming at God yes. in the storm, right? Yes. But that's every dude in the old Testament, right? That they're, they're working through the emotions that separate them from the appreciation of the divine. And we can't, it's not just like you're in a neutral terrain where you accept or reject God for some reason. There's a whole bunch of legitimate grievances, concerns, maybe trauma things you have to go through and you should go through them if somebody tells you to bypass all of that and start affirming their assertion about the world that's not a deep profound religious proposition but if somebody says hey go through unpack all of that what are all your different conflicted feelings about this that'll put you in a place where your heart can be open to it mm -hmm. and i and think there's yep go ahead. i was just gonna say i think we were we were talking recently about the the idea of the death of God. And for me, that's where these things really do come to a head where, where the, and again, I guess this is also kind of where myth can come in and itself kind of be therapeutic and cathartic in terms of initiating that process. Because I think that we, 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 we have a certain relationship to spiritual language. I'll just say God for simplistic, for simplicity's sake. And and sometimes that can be, that can be not right. <laughs> maybe it's necessarily not right. I mean, even just beyond deepening our understanding, maybe there needs to be a moment of real rupture, real break, real catharsis. And um, I feel like the, that we were talking about the, the kind of uh, inversion or perversion of, of religious imagery 
for salutary ends, I think can very much do that. It's sort of that rebellious kind of teenage stage where, you know, oh, I'm going to go goth and, you know, start to do some Satanism and stuff, you know, cause like there needs to be this, this rebellion against that, um, which is, I mean, it's part of human development, I guess. And, uh, but I, and it just, I find that those tools can be very helpful as if they're woven into the tradition itself to be able to engage with the negation of the tradition, with the perversion inversion of the tradition. Um, and that, and that that can be where you, that can be the locus of profundity, um, for engagement with God. Um, so. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that the, um, in a developmental sense, the incorporation of transgressions and reversals is a key uh, element of going to a higher level of value because the higher level of value is going to look like it upsets the current level. And unless you can take that risk, right, unless you can do a revaluation of all values, you can't go to the next step. You described, I think you said profanation of the sacred. I thought of Chugim Trungpa's term spiritual materialism, but there's a reverse there. You know, how do you heal that? It's with the sacralization of the profane. It's with Nietzsche's call to return to the body and return to the earth, uh, to undergo um, some kind of rebelliousness. And this is not foreign to religious tradition, right? The, the prodigal son is venerated. The one who goes astray is venerated above the others in, in the gospel, right? That the one who rebels against it, the one who disagrees, even Job in the Old Testament, right? That God favors him. He favors him over the believers. <laughs> and Job is like, hey, I'm, I'm just going to sit here. And, you know, one of the things Job kind of says is, I'm not going to believe any of this shit until I experience it. And people come and his wife and his friends and the priest are like, no, no, just accept, just accept and things will get better. And God comes and says, you're all wrong. Job is correct. I pick him. <laughs> so that rebellion mm -hmm. and that reversal is, is an element of the engine of faith especially in a time where we need to uh, heal out of the nihilistic um, misrepresentations of religion and come back to an embodied vital pro-world transcendence, which is, you know, what does it mean to use the Lord's name in vain, right? The, the, the structural, dogmatic, mythic membership and largely nihilistic way is to say, if you use it in any way that isn't narrowly devotional on our terms you're using it in vain but i would say almost the exact opposite is that when you say oh my god in astonishment or ecstasy or jesus christ now you're using it not in vain that it's participating in your lived experience and it's only in vain when it's nominal abstract scriptural trapped in one particular building trapped in one particular mode that's using it in vain that's making it a hollow simulation of itself amen amen <laughs> <laughs> well my friend thank you uh, you know so much for uh coming on and talking about this i i really do uh i mean I think that you speak profound wisdom and I, I love talking to you, listening to you because um, I just, I always feel like I gain insight and, and the, the, not just the depth of uh, thought, but also the, the um, meticulousness and the, the uh, uh, clarity of articulation is also very refreshing and enjoyable. So um, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. I can't wait to read um, the meta modernity book uh, that last article that you wrote. 
sounds really fascinating and I, I, I look forward to getting my hands on that. Um, but we will without doubt, uh, speak again before long. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's always fun to talk with you. And, you know, I'm always gauging people like how much of what I think can I share? Here? <laughs> I can share a lot of it here. So oh, I yeah. really appreciate that, Brandon. Indeed, Thanks very much. Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> my pleasure. All right. Adios.